0: This podcast will be the fourth installation in the ANPT Stroke SIG podcast series about locomotor training. The preceding podcast can be found on Synapse or Google Podcasts. We have talked with Dr. George Hornby in a two part series. Dr. Hornby is the primary author of the 2020 Clinical Practice Guideline to Improve Locomotor Function Following Neurological Injury. In the first podcast with Dr. Hornby, we provided an overview of the CPG as well as discussed its strong recommendation for performing moderate to high intensity gait training following acute onset CNS injury, such as stroke. Moderate to high intensity training levels are defined as 70 to 85% 85 of maximum heart rate, 60 to 80% of heart rate reserve or 14 or more out of 20 on the BORG rating scale if heart rate response is blunted by medication. In the second podcast with Dr. Hornby, we delve deeper into the background and design of the locomotor CPG, how the literature search occurred and how the authors interpreted results in order to develop recommendations. The third podcast discussed the ANPT Knowledge Translation Task Force's initiative, Intensity Matters, that provides guidance and tools such as the heart rate reserve calculator, heart rate max calculator, heart rate intensity guide, continuous heart rate monitoring device choices, and Borg rating scale to promote safe and practical execution of the CPG's strong recommendation in the clinic at all stages for patients with neurological conditions. In today's podcast, we will talk to Dr. Jenny Moore, advisor for the Southeastern Norway Regional Center for Knowledge Translation, creator of the Institute for Knowledge Translation, Dr. Chris Henderson of the Indiana University and the Institute for Knowledge Translation, Dr. Lauren Lenka of Mary Freebed Rehabilitation Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Dr. Elizabeth Bowe of Oslo University Hospital, Oslo, Norway, and examined the project they conducted called FIRST focused, intensive, repetitive step training that implemented the evidence-based and laboratory-tested intervention of high-intensity gait training in inpatient stroke rehabilitation facilities and compared its outcomes with traditional care interventions. At all sites during this project, High-intensity gate training was performed for the majority of the sessions, as opposed to traditional P- the traditional PT approach, which involves performing multiple different interventions during sessions. As researchers are aware of, and as clinicians can imagine, there may be some unforeseeable circumstances and variability in sessions that may affect the degree to which a research-based protocol can be filed followed with integrity in a clinic. The aim of this podcast will be to discuss the successes, facilitators, barriers, and challenges that different clinical sites had in implementing this evidence-based intervention. Thank you all for joining us today. We are excited to have you help our clinicians understand more about implementation of this concept of high-intensity gate training. Welcome, and please introduce yourselves.
1: Hi, Jackie. I am Jenny Moore. Um, As Jackie mentioned, I spend most of my time working on knowledge translation efforts through my work with the Norwegian Knowledge Translation Center, and the Institute for Knowledge Translation. I'm also active with the AMPD through various KT-related projects such as the Core Outcomes CPG and the Knowledge Translation Summit. Thanks for inviting us to participate. We look forward to sharing our, our implementation experiences with you.
0: You're very welcome and thank you.
2: Hi, I'm Chris Henderson. I'm an assistant research professor at Indiana University. Um, our research labs, located at the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana. We're actually immediately next to the PTOT gym, um, specifically so that we can help with getting evidence that, that we and other labs generate into clinical practice. And I also serve as the director of innovation for the Institute for Knowledge Translation. Thank you.
3: My name is uh, Elizabeth Bohm. I'm a physical therapist and a researcher at Oslo University Hospital in Oslo, Norway.
4: And I'm Lauren Lenka. I'm a physical therapist at Mary Freebed Rehabilitation Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I worked part-time as a research PT during the first project at Mary Freebed.
0: Thank you all for joining us today and let's get into it. I would first like to let our reviewers know about the website www.knowledgetranslation.org. This has excellent resources for our clinicians. Can you explain what clinicians can find on this site? Sure,
1: thanks for asking about the site, Jackie. On knowledgetranslation.org, we share free information and presentations on implementation of evidence-based practices. Currently, there are a few recorded presentations, including topics related to high-intensity gait training, implementation, and prediction of walking and inpatient rehabilitation. Also, please know that you can Download a clinical prediction rule calculator. This calculator provides a probability that a patient may walk with contact guard assist or better at discharge from inpatient rehabilitation. Uh, the calculator is really cool. Uh, clinicians can plug in a patient's Berg balance scale and lower extremity strength scores, admission to inpatient rehabilitation to obtain a personal prediction for the patient. It should be noted though that this clinical prediction rule should only be applied if high intensity gait training is delivered. On the website, we also provide a detailed presentation on the content we are discussing in today's podcast. The presentation is called Apples to Apples, Experiences from Implementation of High-Intensity Gate Training in the U.S. and Norway. It was originally presented at CSM in 2020 and was later recorded and shared
0: on this website. That calculator is really cool. My question is, can it be used if I have those scores for somebody coming into an outpatient gym? the algorithm is more based on the journey that one would go through starting off based on their scores.
1: Yeah, I'm going to punt this to Chris because Chris is actually the lead author in a publication, just got the publication today in print that describes the methods that were used to develop the clinical prediction rule calculator. Um, so and, and the clinical prediction rule itself. So Chris, do you want to cover this one?
2: sure so for for the prediction calculator or prediction rule itself it's specifically looking at the inpatient rehab setting because and and, and even more specifically you know if, if you're really trying to apply it how similar is your are, are the patients that are included in the study and the lengths of stay and the amount of therapy that's that's provided so in this particular study, the, the median Berg-scored admission is a five, median lower extremity strength um, is a little less than two. So we're talking pretty impaired individuals. And as a result, they had a, a somewhat longer um, length of stay of, of a little under four weeks. So in that kind of um, American inpatient rehabilitation kind of practice setting, they're doing about an hour a day of PT five days a week. So. If, if you don't have kind of as you deviate further and further from those sorts of things it becomes um, less and less applicable the good thing with people post-stroke is that the vast majority are able to walk by the time they get to six months so i think all of that together would tell me still do the high intensity training even if they're you know uh, non-ambulatory when they get to outpatient if they're in that subacute phase um, because there's that good prognosis in general, but I wouldn't apply the calculator.
0: Great to know. Can you first describe the project you performed related to knowledge translation of high intensity gate training?
1: Sure, I'll take this one. Um, over the last five years, we have been fortunate to run the same high intensity gate training implementation project across four sites. Mary Freebed in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Rehabilitation Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana, and a few sites in Norway participated. The collaborating Norwegian sites included Oslo University Hospital, the City of Oslo, and the Regional Center for Knowledge Translation and Rehabilitation. In the project, we aim to assess the characteristics and outcomes of usual care, implement high-intensity gait training, and then compare the results of the usual care to high-intensity gait training. Now the dose of high intensity gait training that we aim to implement described using the fit guideline was a frequency of at least four times a week, intensity of greater than 70% heart rate max with trying to achieve as much time as possible in that target zone during gate training sessions. The time was as much as possible during a one hour session and the type was high-intensity variable gate training using a protocol described in Holleran et al. 2014, which is um, a study that came out of George Hornby's lab. Um, and the protocol provides a really nice overview of the gate training program. We used an implementation framework, the Knowledge Action Framework, to guide the implementation processes at all of the sites. And our research aimed to answer the following questions. How much stepping activity is performed in in inpatient stroke rehabilitation usual care? What are the functional outcomes of usual care? Can high-intensity gait training be implemented with fidelity? And if high-intensity gait training is implemented with fidelity, do patients demonstrate greater gains in function than with usual care?
0: Can you summarize the different phases of the project?
1: The project included two phases. The first phase included the implementation of a balance and gait assessment battery and collecting the characteristics of usual care. The primary outcomes that we implemented were the 10 meter walk test, the six minute walk test and the Burke balance scale across all of the sites. We collected stepping activity to measure the characteristics of usual care. And then after collecting enough data at each site to understand the characteristics and outcomes of usual care, we transitioned to phase two, the implementation of high intensity gait training. We continue to collect outcome measures and stepping activity during this phase. And we also added collection of heart rate data during the physical therapy sessions in this phase as
2: well.
0: Can you define what parameters needed to be met in order for the high intensity gait training protocol to be considered implemented with fidelity?
2: This is, this is a, a tough question and, and not a, a trivial part of the the implementation project. And the reason that this is the case is that there really isn't any research evidence to define what minimum threshold is needed to get these improved gains when you're focusing on walking practice versus kind of the conventional therapy approach. And and when you look at the evidence um, for high intensity gait training, it's generally performing only walking training, specifically targeting those high aerobic intensities, which is different from what we see in conventional therapy, that, that really you have that pie chart, right, where you have some transfer training, some balance training, some strengthening, and other interventions in addition to the walking training that, that we do get in conventional therapy. When you add on other layers of inpatient rehab, you have other things that, that just happen as part of the process, right? So you have maybe um, doctors coming in to, to do their, their rounds for the patient or nursing's delivering medications or you have toileting issues or we need to, to measure the outcomes at a regular interval. All these other things get in the way of practicing, you know, potentially practicing walking at these high intensities, trying to figure out what are those things that absolutely need to happen during therapy, push everything else that we can out of the way um, and really try to get as much walking as we can, because that, that's probably the best we're going to able to do in the confines of, of what our, our practice setting is. We also know from other and, and, and some of the same evidence that it's not only doing it, but how much you're actually practicing. So we know that the more practice walking you get, the more improvement you get in walking outcomes. And similarly, the harder you work during your your stepping practice, the better the outcomes are as well. So it it may not be a... a doing it versus not, but actually this continuum of the more practice and the harder you work, the more improvement you get in these outcomes. All that being said, from what we've learned um, as we've worked through these projects and, and are continuing to do these kinds of projects at other sites, we have a few specific things we're looking at when it comes to fidelity of the intervention. We're looking for meaningful increases in steps per day for these patients, as well as specifically steps per physical therapy session. We're also looking for at least 75% of the PT sessions to prioritize walking practice, meaning that you're picking walking interventions instead of other things you might pick to do. So those other parts of the pie chart that you do have control over, like balance, strengthening, transfer practice. And then of these sessions that are really targeting walking interventions, we're looking for at least 40% of the therapy time to be in that high aerobic intensity
0: and that 40% is based on the heart rate correct
2: yeah so heart rate is is a good indicator of cardiovascular intensity especially for these individuals post stroke depending on the the particular patient population a lot of times they have beta blockers in the mix which really can can limit, it It doesn't, by no means does it invalidate heart rate responses, nor get you off the hook from measuring heart rate with, with these patients. But sometimes you do need to add the RPE scale and even non-verbals um, when you get to people that have different levels of aphasia and the RPE scale becomes challenging to you. So you, so you may have to triangulate intensity, exactly. but it's, it's more than just heart rate.
0: Can you briefly summarize the results of each site in terms of questions you were striving to answer in the implementation phase? Sure. Um, As I mentioned, the
1: goals and processes used were very similar across the three sites. Um, In general, the project resulted in three very different outcomes. Mary Freebed successfully implemented the gate assessment battery, and it was a really great project, probably one of my most successful projects up. Till that time. But when we went into the high intensity gait training phase, we did not successfully implement high intensity gait training according to the fidelity metrics that we set. Now, RHI is still working on improving fidelity, but they're beginning to see some significant changes in some outcome measures. And Norway successfully implemented high intensity gait training and patients demonstrated significant changes in the six minute walk test and the 10 meter walk test as compared to usual care. Their data indicated that patients had as much change in one week of high-intensity gait training as they did during the entire three-week episode of usual care. So it was a very successful project and they implemented high-intensity gait training very quickly.
0: The structure of inpatient rehab in Norway and if it differs from what it's like in America.
3: Well, uh, many, many sites have like one hour but it's not uh, decided by the insurance because our health system is free for the patients. So we don't have like that set time that we have to fill in that way. But many rehabilitation facilities and inpatient care hospitals do have like one hour for rehab. So it is pretty similar.
1: I'll, I'll chime in real quick, though. I think one difference is um, the length of stay and how long um, patients can stay in different levels of inpatient rehab, because they do have a few different levels of inpatient rehab. And uh, Elizabeth,
3: do you want to talk about that just briefly? Well, yeah, um, because we have, it's divided, our healthcare system is divided in like a specialist level service and the primary level service. So at least for our site, there will be like three weeks in the specialist level service, but it's all depending on the outcomes as well, but then they can go further to the primary level service, which will be both inpatient and outpatient. Yeah, and so in the first project,
1: we had um, one uh, specialty hospital, which is Oslo University Hospital, and then one primary level service, um, which was Oslo municipality, the city of Oslo uh, facility. And so we did actually have some patients that were able to do inpatient at Oslo University Hospital and then transferred inpatient at the city level service before getting discharged to home. So um, they, they can have a bit longer of a length of stay than we typically stay here and see
0: here in the U.S. And what strategies were done at all sites to combat knowledge, skills, and resource barriers?
3: Well, I can talk a bit about the strategies that were very similar to all the sites actually. We made a lot of environmental changes. Uh, we secured equipment such as heart rate monitors, AFOs, obstacles for variable training and treadmills. Uh, we also set up the environment for success by creating and posting cheat sheets for target heart rate ranges by heart. Heart rate calculators and RPI, RPA charts. Uh, and um, other modifications included the um, addition of equipment for carrying cases and docking for the heart rate monitors on equipment. And at our site, we also had uh, specific documentation sheets. And these were meant to like help the clinicians document the content of each session. And as these were um available to all the treating patient patient pts in one particular spot this ended up being like an easy conversation starter in a way because during such discussions where we looked at these uh, documentation sheets typical questions could be how did you get so much more time in the zone than i did when i treated that patients or why did you choose that specific treatment strategy, or do you have any suggestions for me on how to challenge this and that? So that was a good like starting point. Mm-hmm. And we also try as often as we could to come along on other PT sessions and then challenge each other with questions of why this and why not that. And so uh, that was uh, I think we also always had a good culture of sharing and questioning treatment choices and. And with this new treatment approach, uh, we experienced that we had and still have like that safe environment for asking questions. I think that makes it, it seems like it makes a huge difference
0: and it doesn't, it allows for less of a need for very formal discussions because discussions are happening anyway. And
3: And then it did happen on our way to the patient or, you know, just after a treatment. So it's... (laughs) Very much informal disu- discussions.
0: Yeah, and it's just like organic, and I guess I think a lo- I know a lot of PTs. The issue is timing. When are you going to have those conversations? But it's, like, mm-hmm. if it's, that culture's there, there's no need. The timing is an issue because it just happens as you, you know, ask your coworker how their day was. Then you'll ask him also him or her ask what like what was helpful in that session. And it yeah. just it seems to make a huge difference. De-implementing PT practices was a barrier at all sites. Can you discuss successes and challenges in doing this at each site?
4: Sure, I can start and talk about some of the the successes at Mary Free Bed first. Throughout the study, we used the knowledge translation approach to co-develop some strategies with the clinicians to overcome barriers that they had helped to identify. We were really successful implementing the outcome measures into consistent practice. And we think um, that was for a few reasons. The way we provided the audit and feedback to them and the clinician's investment and involvement in the process. When we shared the audit feedback for compliance of the outcome measure completion, we shared the results with the entire team for each clinician's adherence levels. So everybody knew how compliant or non-compliant everybody else on the team was. Clinicians also helped to develop a paper packet that tracked the patient's progress during their entire length of stay. We ended up making multiple revisions based on their feedback, and the team still uses this packet over five years later. Clinicians also identified equipment needs that they felt would make it easier to perform the tests. They asked for extra yardsticks for the Berg, measuring wheels for the six-minute walk test, and then we added the 10-meter walk course to three different areas on both of the inpatient floors. They also decided to do all of the outcomes on the same day, and we named it Testing Tuesday, Seeing everybody else complete the outcomes on the same day helped serve as a reminder, especially in the beginning. And then we could update the patient's progress notes before the team meetings that always happened on Wednesdays. Um, On the other side, we were not as successful with implementation of the high-intensity intervention, and that proved to be a lot more challenging for us. Our site struggled with de-implementation, which is defined as the removal of interventions that don't appear to provide optimal care. Staff continued to spend time on equipment ordering, family education, transfers and other interventions. One staff member said it was just a hard shift from more of an NDT background to move to this new intervention. Some staff members were definitely more open to switching to the intervention than others. Some of our barriers included like time spent at team conferences during treatment times, availability of co-treat or equipment just the comfort with delivering high intensity and concerns with vital sign monitoring. We did use m- multiple strategies to positively impact some of those things, like the COTREE availability, adding additional equipment, and comfort with delivering high intensity through case studies with the research team, but it did take longer than anticipate to change practice. We also had a significant census increase on our stroke unit over the course of the money, this the money, the study that made it. Um, challenging for all patients to stay on the team.
0: Absolutely. That's understandable with a sense that increase can make things different. And it makes sense that de-implementing ideas, like you said, NDT it, is such a thing I learned about in PT school and it's still very accepted. And I'm sure it's hard for people to kind of get past that.
2: Yeah. I mean, so if I, if I can just chime in, I guess, so, I mean, we had similar experiences to what at our, so we had similar experiences at RHI to what um, Lauren dealt with at Mary Freebed where, you know, because the first step in the the project is to implement the outcome measures that that wasn't too much of a a hurdle for, I mean, there were, there were definitely barriers that we had to overcome like Lauren had with equipment and figuring out how to document and figuring out the routine. Clinicians were already, you know, they had learned about outcome measures in school, or maybe they were already using them, um, you know, throughout their clinical practice. That it it was not, it it was not a, a massive struggle to get them to buy into adding that in a, a structured and standardized way to their practice, which was really different than the high intensity training intervention because it because of that de-implementation part that went along with it, right? We weren't just asking them to add high intensity training to their kind of therapy toolbox that we talk about. We were essentially telling them dump out the rest of your tools in your toolbox and only do the high intensity training. And if the, if you've been practicing for years or, or decades, that's, that's really, that's a, That's, that's kind of a, that's a personal thing that you're asking them to, to move on from, right? Because you've, you've have, especially if you work with individuals with subacute injuries, they're going to get better essentially by doing anything is, is really kind of the idea at this point. So you, you see that your patients get better. So it's, it's for some people difficult to buy into the idea that if I do something different because the evidence says that that may be more effective that my patients can get even more better than the better that I already see, right? So you're, that's really challenging for some clinicians to buy into. And um, we had to work through a lot of different things. At our facility, it was a lot of not only education um, in terms of teaching them the evidence and things like that, but a lot of kind of peer mentoring, co-treating. The physicians provided order sets for high intensity training to really kind of reemphasize that this was something that they were supporting doing. And then we had a lot of audit and feedback type things at our facility. So uh, we talked about increasing the amount of stepping practice. The patients all wore step monitors. We gave them and the clinicians feedback about how they were doing, how that compared to people of similar levels of impairment. Um, The clinicians got feedback about how well they were doing at documenting the intensity, how well they were achieving the targeted intensity, and that was feedback that didn't just go to the clinician, the entire unit or, or set of therapists got that feedback at the same time, so you also knew where you kind of stacked up, which hopefully was was viewed in a constructive way. Where if you see that someone else is doing really well, you know that was somebody you hopefully went to to say, "Hey, what what's working well for you?" Kind of like Elizabeth talked to about at at their facility. But there were many different things we had to do at our facility to to really try to overcome the the barriers with de-implementation.
0: Do you have any advice specifically, or conversations you can remember? or strategies from conversations that were particularly effective in trying to make a change in a a seasoned clinician that has trained the lives of so many people and really doesn't want to change their way.
2: I think it's really, it can be tough. The longer you've been doing something, the more it's kind of built in that this works because I've seen it works. I think for some people, the harder it is to change. Because I think at the end of the day, we all want our patients to get better. For, For some people, depending on how how you weigh your personal experiences and the number of personal experiences you have with rehabbing patients to what you read in a paper or hear about it, a course, you know, easier or more difficult to, to, to buy into trying something new. That being said, I, I think the one of the biggest things for not only the de-implementation, but a number of barriers that we had at our facility was these, these patient success stories. So, you know, when you've been rehabbing patients for years or decades, you start to kind of get an idea of, okay, if they come in, you know, with a burg of five, you know, maybe they'll, they'll leave that min assist and maybe I can get them home with some family support. But then you get, you get some of these patients where they come in like that. You happen to have really good experiences with the high intensity training. You know, some of these other things that sometimes get in the way, like the toileting or the pain or you know, whatever else weren't, weren't issues. You have good buy-in from the patient and the family and they just, they just crush it, you know, and they, they walk out of there, you know, with a, a, a straight cane or, or whatever it is. And and you get an, enough of these things kind of going on where you're like, oh, you know, like maybe this, maybe this is something that really can make a difference for my patients. And I, I think those things really make a big difference in, in terms of making it more real because now you're, you're merging the clinical experiences with the evidence and you're starting to, to hopefully see that it can, can improve outcomes for your patients.
1: I'll just tag a little bit onto that as well. Um, I I also think this is another reason why it's so important to use standardized outcome measures and clinical practice and use the same outcome measures across clinicians and across patients because um, the clinicians can start um, balancing some of those experience with some objective data. Uh, that they're collecting from their patients and so if um, they work with a patient to administer the outcome measures and see um, what kinds of outcomes they get with usual care but then get a similar patient and do high intensity gait training that can also fill in some more details and then also as an organization similar to how we've done with the first project, the organization can collect data on usual care and look at what kinds of outcomes they're getting and then collect data with high intensity gait training and see what kind of outcomes they're getting to see whether it's making a bigger impact on their patients um, at, that they see at their organization as well. But I, I really do think that um, the use of standardized outcome measures and getting some objective data can also help to calibrate some of the things that we see or we observe in our clinical practice. And it adds another really important piece to the puzzle.
0: Yeah, at the end of the day, everyone in physical therapy are people of science, so numbers don't lie. So I'm sure kind of that combination of outcomes and experiences can really make a difference to somebody who's really not wanting to change their ways At Oslo University Hospital in Norway, it seemed that there was the most initial pushback about the protocol, secondary to concern about increased time for documentation, new equipment, and the shift from good gate mechanics promotion to error encouragement. However, this site ended up having a lot of success implementing the protocol. Can you elaborate on their de-implementation approach that was particularly successful?
3: This is a very interesting question uh, that we've been talking a lot about. And I think the most important strategy that we needed to combat our barriers in Oslo was related to the change of our current care delivery model and our current intervention. And like Chris just said, it was not like uh, we were adding another tool that could feed some patients or that could be used if other strategies failed, because we needed to see a definite change. We had to change. And in order for that to happen, we had to allow our clinicians individually and as a group uh, enough time to immerse new literature and really understand the new treatment approach. So we studied the literature and talked about it, as I said, formally and then informally as well, uh, to get a good understanding out of it. it. And we realized that this could be actually an answer to a clinical challenge we've been talking about for a time. Um, So when this literature and this treatment uh, approach came to us, uh, our clinicians felt that we were taking this decision of change together as responsible clinicians that we like to to be like up to date in a way. So another thing we did together was setting a date for the change. So actually January 1st, 2018 was the date that we started offering this treatment and stopped other parts of the treatment. So we started something and we stopped something else. Of course, as Chris said as well, um, not all of us felt like that was the easiest thing to do. It was like a leap of faith. So um, we were very much hoping for the good results in the beginning to get this going. And it was harder for some to let go than it was for others who actually felt that was simplification meant in a good way. gave room to actually focus on gay training and not to rush and um, it was not done in one in a day so the process to agree to make the change took more than a year but with that time i think this new approach didn't feel that overwhelming Mm -hmm. and they were eager to start and kind of ready to do this but um yeah so Jenny, maybe you have seen us uh, from your perspective, uh, are we or how are we different from the PTs in the US? Yeah, you know
1: this is something I think about a lot and I'm really not sure of the answer. And I, I do think that the part that uh, Elizabeth just mentioned about coming to consensus about implementing high intensity gate training may have played a role in this. Um, this was one part of the project that was different at the Norwegian sites um, than it was at the US sites. Before we started the project there, the clinicians knew about high intensity gate training research. They had already come to consensus that this was a practice they wanted to implement. So they were very excited and they were very much ready for this change. And when we did it, they held each other accountable and supported each other in making that change. Uh, the strategy that we used for ensuring read- readiness for change was very different in the U.S. Um, we naively believed that if clinicians understood the intervention, they would just change their practice and start delivering that. And knowing all that we know about knowledge translation and how much I work in knowledge translation, we know it takes more than that. But we, because we were doing this study, we were afraid it would influence current practice the US clinicians were not exposed to all of the research and did not come to consensus before we started the implementation phase of the project. So as Elizabeth noted, they took more than a year in Norway just to make a decision to to start the project. And in the US, the decision was made to start the project and we started collecting data on usual care. And then we exposed the clinicians to the education and the training and all of the implementation strategies to start um, implementing high intensity gait training. So I'm really not sure if they were as ready for change as the Norwegian group was. This is something that we've learned from these experiences and um, we're currently implementing high intensity gait training at um, actually seven more sites in Norway and at various stages and different projects. And um, there are other facilities here in the U.S. that are also implementing high intensity gait training And um, as we move forward, this is something I'm changing about our strategy for implementation. We want to to give the clinicians time to get ready for the change, to really understand the research and feel like they are ready to let go of all of the other interventions and really embrace this new intervention. And hopefully that will result in quicker adoption as we move forward. But there could be a number of factors. This was just one um, factor that really stood out as a difference between how we moved these three
0: projects forward. It seemed like the time spent to make the change made all the difference.
1: Yeah, and the projects in the US were much longer. Um, the Norwegian project we were able to finish in two years. Um, the Mary Free Bed project um, took five years in total. Um, and we, we were starting to, to make really good changes in stepping and heart rate intensity in their practice, but we still didn't get to the point that was meeting our fidelity metrics. And Chris, I'm not sure exactly how long it's been going on at RHI, what what year you guys are in, because I can't remember exactly when you started.
2: How yeah, many years so been we, we probably, our implementation phase is probably about three and a half years, and then stopped when a pandemic shut down the hospital. So yeah, of course. That. Yeah.
1: yeah, so in a sense, the Norwegian project had, you know, more than a year of understanding what the research was and then we started with implementation of outcome measures so and it, that took us 2 years to get through outcome measures and implementation of high intensity
0: high intensity g- gate training requires that the entirety of the session is focused on gate this left activities like transfers to be for- to be performed by the ot's which was identified as a challenge at all sites what was successful in smoothing ma- smoothly making this change in the traditional ot pt structure So at Mary Freebed, the OTs and
4: PTs work really closely together and are really supportive of each other. We involved the OTs in meetings, so they knew the goals of the project, and they knew that the PTs were going to shift their focus to high intensity during their sessions. They did try to pick up more sessions for family education and perform more of the functional transfer training, so the physical therapist didn't have to. This was something that PTs, owned every free bed, the equipment ordering and the family education. So it did take extra time to break this habit. I don't know if we can 100% say that habit was broken, but OTs did help us out.
2: At our facility at RHI, the, the OTs were definitely aware that this implementation project was going on. And, and as a result, we were really going to prioritize walking during our sessions and, and then as, as we're talking about, you would then therefore have less time for these other things. However, really in talking about talking to the PTs and OTs as we got deeper and deeper into the project, neither really felt like they the, the OT practice was changing necessarily, right? So we have some evidence from some of these, these previous high-intensity training studies that even with exclusively practicing the walking training that transfers and, and balance may come along just as well as if you were doing conventional therapy and specifically practicing those tasks, the OTs really felt like they, they weren't changing their, their patterns, specifically in this bubble. The OTs have, have really, at our facility, have really kind of gotten excited, seeing the, the structured implementation of outcomes and then the, the kind of structured kind of interventions being provided and are on their own trying to work through kind of implementing the same sorts of evidence-based processes in, in their practice.
3: Oslo, this was also a discussion and in some aspects still is. Um, The PTs definitely do and did less training for upper extremities, and in many cases, the OTs did more. However, many patients' main goal was to be able to walk again, and not as many mentioned the arm. So altogether, the arm and hand were not neglected, but the focus shifted more towards gateway.
0: At the Mary Freebed site, it seemed that there was difficulty in increasing steps per day in sessions, having consistent heart rate documentation, and consistently reaching target intensity in the session. Can you discuss the ways you tried to overcome this at this site and any ways you felt were effective at other sites in doing this?
4: Sure. So we tried to overcome this during the study when we realized that we weren't impacting the stepping as much as we'd like to by providing feedback to the clinicians. Uh, At Mary Freeba, multiple different clinicians might see a patient during their episode. That made it difficult to provide feedback based on individual treatment sessions delivered by specific therapists. So we provided stepping feedback based on the patient's stepping over the course of a week. So stepping data for each patient was emailed out to the clinicians and then it was compared to similar patients who were in the first phase of the study. Each clinician saw the stepping amounts that were obtained during physical therapy but they couldn't identify how many steps were delivered during specific sessions by a specific therapist. So because many clinicians treated each patient, that feedback didn't pertain to one person's practice or maybe make one person responsible for those stepping amounts. And I think that made it more difficult to personally reflect on that data and to see a need to change the numbers. So we suspect that feedback just wasn't as successful as changing practice because it was not the clinician level. And that was how we delivered the audit and feedback for the outcome measures. And we were successful with that method. Mm
3: -hmm. We
4: also performed some audits for the heart rate documentation and asked clinicians to put this in a specific part of the chart. And that was often missed as well. Um, The PTs did report that was just often forgotten
0: A barrier identified at RHI was patient and caregiver preferences of interventions performed in the the session since high intensity gait training is a very intensive and tiring intervention. How did the site overcome this?
2: Yeah, So this was something that was definitely most difficult during the early portions of the, inter- the implementation phase. Ignoring for a second that patients and or family members ha- might have had previous experiences with physical therapy or specifically inpatient rehab, there were definitely times that patients might be working hard doing the high-intensity gait training like you just mentioned and see another patient that maybe is lying on the mat or casually doing the new step while, while carrying on a conversation. And ask questions about why why am I doing this instead of doing those things that look you know much less unfun. This really turned into a, a good educational opportunity for for the patient or, or family member to really educate them a, about the evidence. And and I think most of the conversations essentially would go, um, you know, I understand that you want to go home or or you want to walk again and and your ability to go home is is really predicted by your ability to walk. So let's focus on getting your walking better and and if we're going to do that the way to do that is to get as much practice as we can and have you work as hard as you can. So really trying to tie it to, you know, here are what your goals are, here's what the evidence says is the best way to do that. And that was really kind of how those those conversations went, but it was it was definitely something that that would come up when, when the patient saw other patients doing other things.
0: Another barrier at RHI was organization processes, since the space they used to do the training was not always in the PT gym. How did they work to overcome this?
2: Yeah, so we, so we're we're fortunate in that our, our gym is pretty big. I don't actually know what pretty big means, but probably is the size of like a a school cafeteria or or something like that it's it's pretty large and you know we we didn't you know there's stuff in the gym and and people don't just walk over these level surfaces and and when you're walking you need more space to walk so we very quickly started pushing out into the hallways and and other spaces of the hospital some to simulate community environments, some just to not crash into each other as there are light gates and riftins and other pieces of equipment, you know, moving at hopefully a, a quick pace. And this was a, a change from, from what they had seen. And, and some of the, the non clinical staff struggled with, you know, again, you had this huge gym. Why can't you just stay in your space or in your <laughs> corner? So we, we're fortunate we have this hallway that turns into essentially like a racetrack in our facility. It's about 400 feet, it does a loop around the hospital. And because it's a main hallway, there are lots of doorways off of this hallway and and staff and patients would just come out of these doorways into the hallway because that's what you do with the hallway. And there was an adjustment period of, you know, it turned into intersections, essentially, right? Because you have these these people, you know, in in the light gates or the rift or just walking really fast coming around the corner and, and you kind of have to get used to popping your head out or, you know, whatever else to, to be able to safely, you know, move around the hospital because we're, we're trying to incorporate the variable training inevitably, not only are we using the hallway, but we're bringing out obstacles and, um, uneven surfaces and all kinds of junk for, for a Mm non-clinical term for what they kind of described (laughs) it as and putting it in the hallway. And then now you have people, you know, maybe the the hospital staff that are just, you know, uh, moving from one meeting to another or whatever, and now realize that, you know, they don't have that nice level floor, that they actually need to pay attention to where they're walking so that they're not tripping over the obstacles. You know, when you you work on the inpatient schedule and things go sideways that, you know, you may not have time to clean up everything when you're done Mm -hmm. before you have to grab your next patient. And maybe even you're grabbing your next patient to come right back. So, you know, you're intentionally leaving it out. But we would get lots of less than pleasant um, interactions from some of the staff about, you know, you're leaving your stuff everywhere. You know, I, I think that was something that we dealt with. And again, I, I talked earlier about the uh, patient successes and, and that being really important. And I, and I think that was the case here too, because even with the, the non-clinical staff, you still, you still start to see, you know, okay, they came in like this, you know, this is where they're gonna kind of leave, you know, that sort of stuff. Because um, they're still interacting with the patients and, and starting to see that they're getting better than, they, than you kind of anticipated, I think, made a big difference, um, even in this circumstance, for getting people to buy into to the, the bigger picture stuff.
0: A facilitator identified specifically at RHI was the presence of research staff on site, since those researchers could work through equipment difficulties, like heart rate monitors not working, and provide an extra set of eyes for problem solving. Can you discuss how this role can be fulfilled in clinical settings, which don't generally have research staff?
2: You know, when you, when it comes to implementing any sort of project, having, having support from leadership and administration is definitely important, but I think one of the, the equally, if not more so ingredients is having some sort of champion within, in kind of the, the, the front lines. So whether you know, In this case, it's probably going to be a, a PT on the staff that, that really buys into this, really wants to make this project happen and, and is really willing to go that extra mile to re- address the barriers that are inevitably gonna come up. So I, I think one of the, the big picture things that that hopefully people take away from, from our collective experiences is that there are certain barriers that you're gonna encounter regardless of, of where you're trying to implement this. And hopefully you can take from our experiences how to overcome some of those barriers. Aside from that, you're gonna have things that come up at your facility that, that we haven't dealt with for whatever reason, you know, something's different. And I think having that champion in your, in your midst really makes such a big difference in the, the problem solving that may come about to, to make that happen. So you, you don't need the things that come along with the research staff. I'm sure it's helpful, but you really just need that squeaky wheel, that person that really wants to make the project go
0: a facilitator at the Mary Freebed and RHI was leadership support. Can you discuss what top down and bottom up leadership is and what you felt was most effective in implementing a new protocol like high intensity gait training? Sure, so at Mary Freebed a top down leadership
4: approach was used and that is when the therapy managers and directors essentially say to the clinicians, hey this is the procedure we are going to implement and then it is carried out by the clinicians. Um, We did that at Mary Freebad to avoid influencing current practice patterns before phase two of the study. Um, Before that, clinicians knew and they were excited about the study, but they didn't know what high-intensity gait training exactly meant or the details and how it would directly impact their practice. And then at the beginning of phase two, they attended an education course with the expectations and then were expected to start after that. So leadership, support, and presence it, it was help through, helpful throughout the study. They funded some pizza parties to increase engagement. We had some awards for the most improved for outcome measure completion. And then we eventually integrated the practice into job expectations and performance reviews as well.
2: So similar to, so at RHI, we, similar to Mary Freebed, we had that top-down approach where uh, leadership was involved and it was something that they, Wanted to to make happen, but we also had the bottom up approach, and essentially that's that's kind of related to what I just talked about with champions. Where at our facility we had um, initially one, and then ultimately two and three research physical therapists that really served as um, those those kind of they were kind of planted champions, where they 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 were ones that bought in. They were the ones that that were there to serve as resources and mentors and. Um, share patients and really help make this this go. And I think that was that was important on our end for that bottom up approach as well. I will say one of the things we saw with our facility was from with that top down approach administration, I would say originally high intensity training as an initiative, meaning that, you know, they you know, say in meetings that they were supportive of the program, you know, if there were things that needed to be done procedurally to mitigate some of these barriers, they would, they would help do that. And that definitely helped implement the program. At some point, really, in, I mean, independent of the project, there was a, a change in the therapy leadership at our facility. And with that change, it went from high intensity training went, went from being in an initiative that they were supporting to a practice expectation, kind of like what Lauren talked about towards some of the tail end of their project as well and when it when it made that flip from you know kind of the carrot to the stick we really saw a big change in in a relatively short time in terms of um, implementing the intervention.
3: In Oslo there was definitely a bottom-up approach I would say you know the distance from the bottom to the top at our side is not long <laughs> so the leadership view we were looking into it and you know they gave our their thumbs up and followed the process in a way. But it was definitely the clinicians that drove the process. And of course, before we started, we got the approval from the leadership. And I think this is neither the first time nor the last time this is gonna happen at our site, (laughs) this way.
0: So that's all the questions I have for today. Is there anything else anyone wants to add about the project?
1: Out of our experiences of implementing the same thing across three very different sites, we learned that many factors can contribute to implementation success. In our experiences, we found that it was helpful for the clinicians to be ready for the, implement- for the implementation part of the project, that they knew and were ready for the change. It, it really sped it up and made it a very successful project as it was in Norway. It also helped us when we identified the barriers that the clinicians were experiencing to implementing the new practices and then target those with specific implementation strategies to try to overcome them. And then, as Chris mentioned, having early successes with patients who benefit from the interventions is also really helpful. Um, For those clinicians and and organizations that want to take this on, um, I just say, You know, remember that implementation takes time and it takes time from, it takes time to get prepared for implementation. And it also takes time to implement the intervention with fidelity. Um, I always say that, you know, practice doesn't change overnight and it's important to celebrate both the big and the small changes that we see. And if you see just a little bit of a shift, you know, everyone should acknowledge that and be excited about those changes because a lot of small changes end up turning into a really big change. So hopefully the experiences that we shared from implementation across these sites will help others in implementing this at their own organization. And thanks again, Jackie, for inviting us to come and talk about this project.
0: Absolutely. I think our listeners will really enjoy listening to this and take a lot away from it. So thank you guys as
2: well. That completes our series on high-intensity walking interventions. We hope that you have enjoyed it. We are working on some exciting new projects for the new year and look forward to having you tune in listening